Hi, everyone, and thanks for watching. My name is Eldon, and I have uh, a great privilege to serve on the pastoral team here at Central. And I also want to say uh, Happy Mother's Day to all of you uh, moms out there. We are in, a, uh, in the middle of a series uh, in the Beatitudes, which describes a very blessed life. And my prayer uh, for all of you moms is that you truly would be blessed today, particularly those who've got little kids at home, which at the best of times is so challenging, can be very frustrating and tiring for sure. And so I, I hope and I pray that those who uh, are around you today are going to bless you and spoil you uh, extra well today. So let's jump back into uh, these blessings that we've been talking about for the last three weeks and build on them as we add a fourth. So Matthew uh, 5 begins this way. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then when uh, Pastor Matt, who kind of sets the tone and direction and schedule for our preaching, came to verse 6, he said, uh, he, he read this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and he said, time out, this is a message for fair, because as is commonly known, I uh, rather enjoy food. So there's a lot going on these days in social media land about uh, the pandemic and food, and I'm only going to digress uh, right now into just uh, one, if you'll allow me a moment. So I saw the other day on Facebook this thing that said uh, the budget for uh, the month of April. Entertainment? Zero. Gas, zero. Gifts, zero. Clothes, zero. Sports, zero. Food, $2,799. Now, the unfortunate part about that is that there's a lot of people right now who can't even afford food. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for cinnamon buns and for coffee or bacon and eggs or depending on what time you are watching this, a, a ribeye steak, medium rare, of course, garlic mashed potatoes, some prawns, just saying. No, Jesus said this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So the heart of the issue is, what does righteousness mean? So I'd like to start there because righteousness is the object of what we are to hunger and thirst for, which ultimately leads to a satisfied and a blessed life. That's what Jesus said. So let's take those main concepts in that order. Let's look at righteousness, then, it looks, then let's look at what it means to really hunger and thirst, and then let's look at what it possibly would mean to have a satisfied life that Jesus talked about. So Nicky Gumbel wrote this. He said, the word righteous is often associated with self-righteous and has almost become a term of abuse. However, righteous in the Bible, he said, is a wonderful word. In fact, it is extremely important for us to understand the whole Bible. Righteousness is ultimately about right relationships. That's important. A right relationship with God and right relationships with others. In the New Testament, we come to understand, said, said Gumbel, that this righteousness is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. So righteousness and relationship are inextricably linked. That's why we are to crave it and desire it like a good meal that is so satisfying. So 
I want to let you in on something. Do you, do you know why I love food so much and I talk about it, in fact, quite a bit? I want to tell you a story. So I am the youngest of four siblings. I have, I have three siblings. And so when I was growing up, when I hit about 11, 11 and a half, my sister was moving out of the house. She's the oldest in the family. And so that left me and my older uh, twin brothers uh, to do the farm work. My sister spent a lot of time in the house with my mom, helping her. But when she was gone, and I wanted to be outside with my brothers helping dad, you know, with the machinery or work on the field or with the, the cattle or whatever, he would say, go help your mom. Go help your mom. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I would have rather preferred to be outside. But the work that I did with mom, all the way from, you know, canning pickles to baking bread, making meals for lunch and for supper, and, and doing laundry and all of those things. By the way, my wife uh, is very pleased that I grew up that way. Uh, all of those things for me now remind me of my mom. And so when I enjoy food and I really enjoy cooking, I think about my relationship with her. And my satisfaction with food is tied to two things. It's tied to, first of all, quality, not quantity. So if you look at any, you know, study or follow any chef, like Robert Irvine, for example, Restaurant Impossible, he always tells restaurant orders, use fresh ingredients and prepare them with passion and love. And that was my mom. That was our farm. And, and so um, relationships are, are uh, food is tied to relationships. First of all, relationship with other people, humans with family, friends, and also Trudeau, uh, sorry, uh, uh, strangers. I I was going to say, Justin Trudeau this past week talked about food in his address to the nation uh, when he talked about the the industry that is struggling so much, and he began by saying how important food is right now because it brings families together. It helps them create, to be together, to relieve stress, to have fun together. And so uh, food, relationship, Uh, on a human level, but also the divine level, as we're going to see, both are needed to thrive uh, in this area of righteousness. So righteousness, relationships, eating together, and I think there's three ways that we can uh, understand this righteousness and, and, and follow me here. So first is we have to talk about right living, and this means a practical righteousness, which is about right relationship with people. Then we're going to talk about right standing. I call this positional righteousness, which is all about our relationship, again, with God. And... We have to talk about a combination of these two interpretations of the word as both a gift of God and something we do, a task, which is really what leads to a holistic, fruitful, satisfactory, and truly blessed or happy life. And I want to call this a pooled righteousness because we're going to put them together. So let's talk about these three ways of understanding righteousness. Remember, context is relationship. So Jerry Bridges, in his book called The Blessing of Humility, calls this uh, practical righteousness, he calls it experiential righteousness. Doing right. It is our conduct that accords with God's will and is pleasing to him. I believe that actually that this is the primary interpretation here based not only on the word itself, righteousness, but also the context uh, both before Matthew 5 and immediately after the Beatitudes and really most of the book of Matthew. 
This type of righteousness usually interprets hungering and thirsting in an active sense. It is a question of works and not something simply as desire. However, righteousness is not simply a matter of ethics. Because Christ is the essence of God's righteousness, it is much more than the fairness that is due every person or that we think is due every person. We're gonna get there in a bit, but you see, we simply cannot talk about righteousness without talking about Jesus. And you see, Jesus, who was the righteousness of God, who came to this earth to fulfill all righteousness, he fulfilled all of the law with its demands, the things that are right, he actually doesn't do what is fair, but he does what is just, what is right according to his righteousness that he gives us even though we don't deserve it. So righteousness is so much more than fairness. Ultimately, it's about grace. Listen, if God would treat me as I deserve to be treated, as my sins dictate that I should be treated according to the law, what's right, trust me, I would not be preaching to you right now. I'd likely, in fact, be under a rock pile somewhere But nonetheless, righteousness or right living, it matters. Why? I want to give you a couple of reasons. There are more, but here's two. First, it matters because we are made in God's image and have been created to reflect his character, which is holy and righteous and just. Relationship. Four times in Leviticus, uh, chapters 11, 19, and 20, God told his people repeatedly, be holy because I am holy. This is repeated in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter, but with a bit of a twist. Now he put it in the context of a grateful response to Jesus' finished work on the cross where he shed his blood which purifies us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus himself told us uh, in chapter 6, Matthew, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So it matters what we pursue and how we act because people made in the image of God with whom we are to have right relationship are impacted by our actions. Right living matters because our relationships and our world would be chaos without it. It matters how we treat our kids and our spouse. It matters how siblings treat each other. If Adam and Eve were still around, they would tell you how much it matters. I mean, they weren't even living in a pandemic and their kids still couldn't get along. It doesn't take long due to sin for people to start hurting one another. So it matters how we respond to those we love and to those also in authority over us, to the police, to the judge, to the chief medical officer. I just read an article this morning where right living matters for me and and the title of the article was God Blesses Holiness, Not Pastoral Talent. So right living matters because people made in the image of God matter. Secondly, righteousness matters because it points us to the only one who is truly holy and perfectly righteous, Jesus, who came to do what we cannot do. That was to fulfill the requirements of the law, what was right. And so our effort, which falls so desperately short of his perfect holiness and righteousness, only proves just how desperately we need him. So ultimately, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness is to seek him. Our striving is actually a good thing because it frustrates us and makes us realize that we just can't do it. The Bible tells me that my righteousness compared to God's is like a filthy rag. 
It, it doesn't even come close to his. As much as I think I'm a good person, listen, there's always somebody who's better. But the reality is, is that other guy falls just as short of God's standards as I do. God says that all of us have a heart that is desperately wicked and that there is no one who is righteous, no one who does good, not one. There is no one without sin. So while doing good is commendable and it reflects the character of God, it cannot save us. David, in the Old Testament, he understood this. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 2, David said, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. I'm going to come back to that. But you see, our love for others and how we treat others has to be based, first of all, on our love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the relational aspect of righteousness must include more than the human to human. It must include the divine relationship. Hungering and thirsting can mean both to exert oneself in a practical way and to long for, to long for a type of righteousness that really precedes the practical righteousness. Hungering and thirsting must be for a righteousness based on relationship with God through Christ, not on anything we do. The only thing we can do, listen, is to fall upon the mercy and the grace of God through faith, which in itself is a gift of God. So let's move from this practical righteousness to positional, which I've already talked about a bit, but this kind of righteousness must be interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture, primarily Paul and Peter, in light of grace, not works. Hungering and thirsting take on a a bit more of a passive note in the sense that it is a question of God's righteousness imputed to a person. And so hungering and thirsting can only refer to a human longing for that which only God can do and nothing that we can do or earn or work for. So back to Psalm 16, remember David? He said, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, those who are imputed with a goodness, a righteousness that comes only from God, David said, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Positional righteousness means not to do right, but to be made right with God through Christ. Our good works cannot save us, but Christ's can, because he being the righteousness of God who came to fulfill all things right, the law, he is able, as Paul said in Romans, to give us a righteousness apart from the law. Jesus went on to say right after this section here in Matthew that I, that I just read, he said to his, his uh, followers, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus said, unless your righteousness comes from me, you are hooped. If you want to get to heaven on your own, Jesus said, not only do you have to exceed the expectations of the law and how the Pharisees interpreted that law, but you actually have to be perfect. You can't mess up at all. You have to be exactly like God the Father himself. Um, ain't gonna happen. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But then Paul writes this, verse 21, for our sake 
He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, me, you, might become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. First, Peter uh, agrees with this, and in 1 Peter 3, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, for me, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being, being made alive in the Spirit. Listen, there's no other way to see this. We need Jesus. And I, I am so thankful that my mom saw that, and she took it upon herself to point us kids, me and my brothers and my sister, she pointed us to Jesus. I remember the day so well. My brother came running out to meet me. I can picture exactly where I was on the path between the house and the barn. He grabbed my hand and he started leading me to the house and I said, what's up? And he says, you have to do this, Eldon. I said, well, what? And he said, mom just, mom just led me to Jesus. I invited Jesus into my heart and you need to do this. So he, he kind of pulled me into the house. He brought me into the bedroom that, that us three boys shared. We had, my dad built a triple bunk bed, and uh, I lived on the top. can imagine the smells up there, but nonetheless, my brother brought me in. He, he said, Eldon, kneel on the floor. And as we knelt on the hard floor beside that triple bunk bed, he led me in a prayer where I honestly believe in an authentic way, I as a five-year-old came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he saved me. And he became my righteousness. And it was because it was because of my mom that I stand before you really today. And so I want to say, moms and dads, you are in such a good position these days to point your kids to Jesus, to show them a righteousness apart from the law. And I want to I want to beg you, don't squander that opportunity. So what happens when we put these two things together, when we pool them? You see, there's a, just as there's a danger in thinking that works can save us, which they can't, there's also a danger in simply giving lip service to God, treating him like a fire insurance policy or a get-out-of-jail-free card. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, unrighteousness. And James said that a faith without works is is dead. It's fruitless. And Jesus had no use for trees that bore no fruit. They were cursed and cut down and burned. And I want to tell you, listen, there is nothing There is nothing that gives the church and Christians a worse reputation than proclaiming heaven and living like hell. You see, when we commit our lives to truly following Jesus and allowing him to become our righteousness, he comes to live live in us by his spirit who then enables us to truly love others and to treat them right and to do righteous things, not for self-gain out of impure motives or make ourselves look good or to feel better somehow or to try to earn points with God to get us into heaven or a better standing in heaven, but simply to glorify God and then to lead others to that same righteousness that they so desperately need. It's called faith in action, which is fruit, and Jesus talks about it just after the Beatitudes. Uh, 
So you got practical righteousness makes us realize our need for Jesus. Positional fulfills our need for Jesus and you pool them together and there's an actualization of Jesus in our life which points others to him. In verse 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what? There is great satisfaction in having our own hunger and thirst met, but there's even greater satisfaction in seeing others' hunger and thirst satisfied in Jesus. And that, friends, is what we are to hunger and thirst for and long for, is if our very life depended on it, because quite literally it does. Now, Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, but he said, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for that kind of righteousness. There's a big difference. To hunger and to thirst is a very present, active, strong desire, so strong, so intense, that it, it, it leads us to have that need satisfied, one that we can't satisfy on our own. The author of Psalm 42, he got this. He said, as a deer pants for water, for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and stand before him? The psalmist didn't say, oh, if I have to, do I have to stand before God? He said, no, when? When can I meet God? This was the desperate cry of the woman at the well whose life was so dry and so empty in the pursuit of relationships that didn't satisfy that when she met Jesus, who compassionately yet truthfully confronted her sinful lifestyle and offered himself as living water, it became in her as Jesus promised it would. It became a wellspring, a fresh bubbling spring of water that gave her both joy and abundant life now and also the promise of eternal life. That's what Jesus said, eternal life. And a couple of chapters later in John 6, Jesus would declare himself to, to be not only living water but the bread of life. Then he said that anyone who would eat this bread, referring to himself, not literally, but that, that would believe in him, the living bread from heaven, and would drink his blood, again, not literally, but belief in the sacrifice that he would make to, a, to cover and atone for our sin, to take it away, that person would have eternal life. And some people rejected this, and they left Jesus, and then he turned to his true followers, and he said, and he said, what about you? And Peter declared, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the righteous one, Jesus. I heard about a new believer in Jesus who was desperate to get to know him, to read the Bible. He was hungry for Jesus. However, he had lost his eyesight and he had lost both hands in an explosion. So he couldn't read. When he had heard about a woman who read Braille with her lips, he tried it, only to discover that the nerve endings in his lips had also been destroyed. But later, he discovered that he could feel the Braille characters with his tongue, and he learned to read the scriptures that way. And I just thought to myself, am I, are we that desperate to have our hunger and thirst for Jesus satisfied. The prophet Jeremiah said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does a blessed and satisfied life look like? 
I want to conclude with a story in the Bible, very briefly, of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Paints a pretty good picture. As a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had reached the top of his profession. He had become wealthy. His work was his priority. He likely had people working underneath him. He would have been promoted many times. He had many reasons to feel satisfied, and yet his life was empty. For all his money, success, family life, and religion, there was still something missing. And what started out as great achievement with the aim of helping, I think, both his own people and the government led to greed, ostracism, and great unpopularity. And in fact, I'm sure that Zacchaeus began to resent his job and he felt trapped in this life that he had chosen. And Zacchaeus came to realize very quickly that he didn't live up to the name that his parents gave him, which literally means the righteous one. <laughs> he was widely regarded as a sinner because he was collecting taxes from his own people and giving it to the Romans and taking a lot of it for himself. All of this led to great dissatisfaction, so he started checking out Jesus. And Jesus checked him out too. Zacchaeus probably felt that God would reject him and turn away from him, but Jesus, who loves imperfect and sinful people, instead of turning away, turned toward him and loved Zacchaeus unconditionally. And in a dramatic encounter, Jesus called Zacchaeus out. Zacchaeus humbled himself, he obeyed Jesus, and he allowed Jesus to come not only into his home, but into his life. And the result was total transformation. He was a different guy. He immediately decided to give instead of take. He, he said, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. He said, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times. I will make amends for my wrongs. He did what was right. His attitude changed completely. And not only was he a different person, but his whole family was transformed. Jesus declared at the end of that story, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, building on really the previous Beatitudes, he recognized his poverty of spirit and his desperate need for Jesus. He mourned over his sin and he did something about it. And with meekness, he humbled himself. He hungered and he thirsted for righteousness and his family and his life were completely transformed. And that, friends, is what it means to be blessed. That is a happy and a satisfied life. As I close, I have two questions for you. The first is this. Are you satisfied with your life? You see, people seek satisfaction in all kinds of things, both bad and good. I mean, there's a lot of people hungering and thirsting right now in our world for all kinds of things, for the right appearance, for approval, for belonging, all of which we will seek to satisfy, if not with Jesus, with things like food, work, a haircut, clothes, money, sex, drugs, straight A's at school, you know, working out at the gym, a diet, alcohol. But like the Rolling Stones said, the more you try and you try, and you try, and you try, you won't get no satisfaction from those things. They won't satisfy, and they won't save. But what they will do, however, is create in us a deeper hunger and thirst for the one who does save, for the one who does satisfy. Jesus, the living bread, the bread of life, and the living water. Jerry Bridges, again back to his book, he said, what causes believers to hunger and thirst for righteousness? 
It is a growing recognition of their own continued sinfulness, coupled with the glad realization that their sins are covered by the blood of Christ and that they are clothed in his righteousness. They deeply desire to be in their experience what they are in their standing with God. They long to be freed more and more from the persistent sin patterns in their lives and to see more of those gracious traits that the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. The tension between what they desire to be and what they see themselves to be produces a continual state of humility toward God and other people. So here's my last question. If you knew that your next meal would be your last, what would you have? What would satisfy you? So here's something practical that you can do this week. I want you, if you're a family, to pull the family on this question. Now, if there's only two of you, you can, you know, rock, paper, scissor it, whatever you have to do. If you're uh, by yourself, I guess that won't be hard to pick one. But pick the winter dinner. And what I want you to do this week is to cook that meal together. And while you're preparing it and while you're eating it, I want you to intentionally talk about your appetite for Jesus. Does he satisfy you? You see, isolation has its advantages. Rather than seeing the negative of being locked under quarantine, use it as a time to recognize your unrighteous failing. You know, what things like Zacchaeus do you need to make right? What things, mom and dad, do you need to maybe confess to your kids? Use it as a time to recognize your desperate need of Jesus, to be made right and then to act right. In the words of Dr. Henry, Bonnie Henry, who always says that we need to be kind, be calm, be safe. Use it as a time to point each other to him who satisfies. Now is the time, parents, moms, great opportunity to point your kids to Jesus. Now is the time, church, to point our neighbors, our friends, to Jesus. I want to close with the words of one of my favorite chefs, <laughs> Guy Fieri, the mayor of Flavortown itself, who said, was that a righteous road trip or what? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus, the Holy One of God, who in his righteousness fulfilled all of your requirements. He satisfied you. He appeased your wrath, a holy God, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I praise you for that. If there's anyone this morning contemplating that decision, help them by the power of your spirit. Draw them in to be able to say yes to you, to have their thirst thirst satisfied and quenched and their hunger for things that they are seeking outside of you. Help them to seek it in you, Lord. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory. And help us, God, as a church, as people who bear your name to do good works that would glorify you and draw others into that relationship with you that they so desperately need, that they would be satisfied. Help us with that, God, as a church. Thanks again for all the mums out there. Strengthen them, encourage them, and give them joy as they spend extra time with their kids. In Jesus' name, amen.